Ecclesiastes 11. If you found it, why don't you stand with me? We'll read together God's Word. Ecclesiastes 11, verse, uh, chapters 11 through 12 get a little more practical than previous chapters in the book. We're going to look at the end of chapter 11, verses 7 through 10, and you're going to notice, it, it, as a preacher who believes in the gospel, it, it almost feels too practical. This is, this is one of those how-to sermons that I tend to shy away from. You're going to notice that what Solomon presents to us in these few verses is how, in essence, to live. Look with me, if you will, beginning in verse 7. Light is sweet. It's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So, if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. So rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body. For the youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Would you join me now as we pray? Father in heaven, I'm asking that you would come and that you would use me in spite of me. I know you know more than any other how weak I feel, particularly with reference to this text. So I'm asking that you would speak to your people by the power of your Spirit and you would use me in spite of me as a means to that end. I ask this now for Jesus' sake. Amen. You may be seated. The most difficult prayer in all the Bible, in my judgment, is a prayer of Moses found in Psalm 90, verse 12 where he prays, teach me to number my days. Now, you know that verse. You may find it a little shocking that I would call it the most difficult. I find it difficult because the prayer, God, teach me to number my days, it is an unnatural prayer. Because what you're doing in that moment is you're saying, God, teach me that my life is a vapor. Teach me that all I hold dear, the foundation I stand on, is sinking sand. I am just a mist. Lord, teach me that my health is fleeting. The one asset I have is depreciating moment by moment. It's unnatural to pray, Lord, teach me that my days are numbered. Time, the greatest currency any of us have, is draining by the minute. It's an unnatural prayer. It's a, it's a daring, it's a daring prayer. It's a gutsy prayer. Because what you are doing in that moment is you're saying, God, teach me what you taught Paul, who famously said, to live is Christ, but then to die is gain. This is... Asking God, teach me what you taught C.T. Studd, a famed British missionary most known for a poem he wrote. Pretty much the only poem I like. This poem, he says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You believe that? You are asking God to teach you what he taught Jim Elliot, that famed missionary martyred 
in Ecuador who said that he is no fool, no man is a fool, who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You are asking God to teach you what He is presently teaching one of my dearest friends, Joel Tigreen, a missionary in Turkey. I've shared you, with you his story before. Joel, as we speak, is dying. In May, or uh, forgive me, last January, he got a little pain in his right arm. He's a healthy 36-year-old, has a wife and five children. His oldest is 10, his youngest is born this year. Serving the Lord in Turkey, got a weird pain, found out it was stage 4 cancer. He's in hospice as of this week. Joel and I have been texting now for the last handful of weeks. Let me just read a few things Joel has shared with me by text message. In fact, he just sent me a picture of himself right before I walked up here. He said, Kyler, our God is good to us. I'm going home. The tumors have doubled in size. I don't have long, but by God's grace, I'm full of trust and hope. God's good. I'll see you soon, Kyler, but I hope it's not too soon. I'm excited. Could any of you find yourselves typing that out on a phone in your dying days? Teach me, O God, to number my days. This is a prayer to be taught what Solomon evidently learned. For in Ecclesiastes 11, we see Solomon in essence call all of us together. And what he does is he shows us how to live with numbered days. And he speaks to two broad groups of people in this text. He speaks right now to the oldest in this room. And what Solomon is doing is he's saying to each of you who are in the upper ages in this room, let me show you how to live on borrowed time. But then conversely, he looks at all the young ones in this room, students, children, and he asks you to come sit at his feet. And he says, let me show you how to live when it seems like you have endless time. And here's what's amazing. The counsel he gives to the oldest and youngest is the same. It is one singular piece of advice. In my judgment, the theme of this text, mark it down. His call to us today through Ecclesiastes 11, 7 through 10 is brothers and sisters live in light of eternity. It's a pithy phrase. You've heard it before. It's clearly not original to me. But mercy is it difficult to live because so many in this very room, and I trust joining online today, so many are not living. There are many in this room who are joyless. The, your life just communicates that there is not much joy in the Lord. Whereas there are others of you that have fallen in the other rut, and you're reckless. You are as the prodigal was. You're just living it up without any reference to God. And Solomon's plea to both that have fallen on both sides is, come together, there is a better way. Come to me, let me show you, while this short life you have to live, let me show you there is a better way to live. He is calling us in this verse, in these verses, he is calling us to see a better way. And for you to see this, I want you to, if you've got a pen, take it out and mark it down. Bibles are meant to be written in. I want you to circle the word but in verse 8 and the second 
but you find in verse 9. Those two words, those conjunctions, they're going to split the text in half for us. I want you to see this with me. In these, two, uh, these few verses, what he does is he shows us a positive way to live and then a negative way to live. Positively, in verses 7 and 8, he gives us a really great message. And then he gives us a but and says, but let me tell you how not to do this. And then he repeats himself in verse 9. Let me give you a positive way to live, but then he gives you a but. He reminds you, hold on now for a minute. Remember this. So today, if you're taking notes, I want you to mark these down. These two ways to live. And it's not like either or. This is what you would call like a two-lane road going the same direction. These lanes are going the same way you're going to be riding and your life is big enough that you're going to probably end up being in both lanes. So mark this down. Number one, his call to us in this text is to live joyfully, which you see very clearly when he says rejoice in verse eight. Again, he commands in verse nine, rejoice. Now, notice what word I use to describe that. It's a command. He commands us to rejoice, i.e. it's not optional. Now, have you ever heard a preacher tell you that it is not optional to have joy? It's not optional to live joyfully? Solomon's not alone in this council. The Bible is replete with examples. In fact, this might strike you as wild, The call to be happy in God is the number one, most consistent, most common command in all the Bible. Maybe you've heard that it was fear not. Well, you could subsume that in the call to have joy in the Lord. Fear not because God is your joy. Rejoice, he says, rejoice. He called Israel to serve the Lord with gladness. Let Jacob rejoice. He called the nations, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. He calls creation itself. He says, let creation be glad. Let the heavens rejoice. Jesus himself says, rejoice and be glad for great is your reward. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. He says it in almost every epistle he wrote. James says, count it all joy. Indeed, John in the book of Revelation says, let us be glad and rejoice and give God glory. Now, this is a rabbit trail that is very tempting to go down, partly because it's so close to my conversion story, but we need to stick to the text for the sake of time. And so I just want you to see in this text two motivations to rejoice if today you find it difficult. And number one, you're going to see this in verse 7, the first motivation to live joyfully is because, this is pretty simple, life is good. It's, it's better, probably the better way to say it is life is better then you may realize. Look with me, if you will, at verse 7. Light is sweet. It's pleasant for the eyes to see sun. Now, when you see that word, light is sweet, that's a poetic way to say life is good. It poetically denotes life and enjoyment. And when he says it's pleasant to see the sun, he is inferring this. Life is something that should be savored and enjoyed while you have it, which is why he follows it up with, so rejoice in verse 8. Rejoice because light is sweet. It's pleasant. Now, the trick is, I can equally say that life is actually pretty stinking tough. Life's hard. Cancer comes. Marriages crumble. Children rebel. Layoffs, they're going to happen. 
infertility, it's going to surprise you. Babies are going to cry all night. Life is not always that sweet. And what Solomon does is he says, come here. Rub your weary eyes, and I want you to open them now, and behold the grace I've given you that you don't even see. Open your eyes and look at the sun. This is what I'm asking you. This is what the Lord did for me this week, is to open your eyes and just look again and see, despite all the burdens you've brought in this room today, look and see how good He is to you. See His goodness just out in creation. When you leave church today, just walk out and go take a look at a tree. Go take a look at a squirrel running in your backyard. Grit your teeth and thank the Lord for pollen. That might be part of the fall. See His goodness. He has revealed Himself in all of His magnificent glory in creation, which is why Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. See His goodness. Taste it. Taste it in His Word. Open it and see that He has not only revealed Himself in all creation, He has revealed Himself magnificently here. And what you find is a good, loving, and gracious God. One whose mercies are new every morning. One who will meet all your anxious needs, Matthew 6 says. One who can deliver you from all of your fears, the psalmist says. One who is working all things together for the good of those who love Him, as Romans 8 so memorably says. This is a good God. Taste Him. See Him. Hear Him. Hear Him by just talking to somebody on your row and go ask them about God's grace in their life. Or go pick up a Christian biography. We've got several in our bookstore. There is nothing more encouraging to my heart than to go read about how somebody else has fought the fight of faith. Go learn from somebody else. Go hear about His goodness from somebody else. Sense it. I want to invite you to sense His goodness today. He has been so good to you. Light is sweet and it is so pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Children in this room, just go home and thank God for the simple joys of a backyard and a popsicle. Students, you ought to thank God Almighty for the blessing of a roof over your head and just a good friend. Moms, many of you might need to remind yourself of the mundane joys of motherhood. And while wiping noses endlessly, you're going to get a sweet hug from your two-year-old. Some of the simple pleasures of life. Providers in this room, perhaps many of you men who are slaving long hours, thank God for the provision of employment. And the fact that you have a vehicle you can fill up. For the oldest amongst us, thank God for His history of grace to you. If you don't make this a practice, you ought to. Just write down all the mercies God has had on you. Live joyfully because life is better than you realize. It's good. But I want you to see a second thing we see in this text. Now go to the first half of verse 9, where he commands us yet again, Rejoice, brothers and sisters. And why does he say it? Look with me, if you will, at verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. In other words, what he is reminding us in this text is, Hey, you should live joyfully not only because life is good. You ought to live joyfully because life is shorter than you realize. It is going quickly. My mom used to always tell me when I was growing up, Kyler, these are the best days of your life. 
I used to always think, man, if only I had a driver's license. If only I got to go to college and live with friends in a dorm. If only I could get a good paying job. If only I could get a sweet wife. If only I could get a nicer home. If only we could have a child. And now having had all those things, I can look back and say, Mom was right. Those were not half bad days, were they? I mean, you get to live and do absolutely nothing and everything is taken care of for you. That is what Solomon is reminding us is, for those of you that are enjoying your youth, man, there is some great joy to be had in being young. You're not waking up. I'm only 32 and I'm waking up and my right leg is hurting me and I'm like hobbling to the bathroom. Some of you guys have a little bit more experience than that. You know, Pastor Rick Blasey, he just had a birthday Friday and he's now looking 50 square in the eye. Rick, you want to come up here and give this illustration? <laughs> Love you, Rick. Rejoice in your youth. Let your heart cheer you. In other words, rejoice while you can. You've heard it said, youth is a wonderful thing. It's a shame it's wasted on the young. Because there is so much potential possibility, subtle joys of just having your strength and freedom of being young. And so it's a good wake-up call to the workaholics in this room. And it's a wake-up call to the ambitious in this room. Enjoy today. You are not promised tomorrow. Life is shorter than you realize. He gives us bizarre counsel in the next line. What does he say? Walk in the ways of your heart. That sounds an awful lot like follow your heart. Walk in the sight of your eyes. Now, here's a good principle of interpreting the Bible. When you come upon a verse that seems to make you scratch your head, one great principle that men throughout history have applied is the principle of it, the Bible interpreting itself. The Bible being its best interpreter. So when you read something like that, you should be like, well, you know, the Bible also says in a great many places that you ought not follow your heart. That your heart is deceitful. So what do we make of this? Well, I think what we must do when we are confronted with a text like this is remember that Solomon is talking to believers and he is saying a heart gripped by Christ, a heart transformed, well, obviously we're importing the New Testament here, a heart that has been transformed is one in which you must recognize something. You must recognize that in Christ you ought not overanalyze everything. You ought not be paralyzed by analysis. You ought not worry and fret or ask for some mystical sign on what you should do next. You should just love the Lord, seek to follow Him with your heart, and just start walking. Just go and do something. Don't put out the fleece, so to speak. Just trust the Lord and follow Him. And He in His great sovereignty is going to take care of it. So for those of you that are wondering whether or not you should marry that individual, if they love the Lord Jesus and they're going to take care of you, just get married. They're imperfect and they're going to be far more imperfect the day after you marry them. It's okay. You're not a walk in the park either. It's talking to you. Mm -hmm. Just remember, life is short and eternity is long. Live joyfully because it is good and it is shorter than you think. That's number one. Number two, mark this down. We also ought to now look at the converse. We've seen the positive call to live joyfully. Now let's, let's govern ourselves and remember, number two, we must, I believe this text teaches, live wisely. Now this is a good reminder because this text can feel like license. 
You can read this text and be like, man, I can do what I want. I can live it up, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow I just might die. And this is the reminder. This is, this is something that you really need to chew on. Wisdom is the guardrail for joy. If you want to live joyfully, you will fall off the cliff if you do not have the guardrails of wisdom guiding you, which is why Solomon, under the inspiration of the Spirit, reminds us with two buts. He says, now listen, remember a few things. In fact, I would argue he says three things. You're going to see this in the latter half of verse 8, the latter half of verse 9, and verse 10. Three reminders. Three, you could even call these negative commands to remember. So first off, mark this down. One reason we ought to live wisely is first off because suffering is coming. Look at verse 8. He says, if a person lives many years, let him rejoice, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. Life is not always sunny. It's hard. Suffering's coming. There are cloudy days, there are dark days, there are dark winters of the soul. And Solomon is reminding us that joy rooted in circumstances is not biblical joy. It's a facade. It's chipper, it's trivial, it's shallow. The kind of joy, the life of joy that Solomon is calling us to is the kind of joy that will sustain itself through many dark days. Which is why Paul says in Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Always? How can Joel Tigreen rejoice right now? He's 36 looking at his five children, 10 years of age and younger. How can he possibly rejoice? How could Paul have said this when he was in prison writing this in Philippians? Marshall Siegel, I've never met him. I would love to one day. He writes for the Desiring God blog. I love anything this guy writes. He quipped, never settle for a God who cannot satisfy you in a prison cell. Never settle for a God who's not going to satisfy your sin-stricken soul when you're looking death in the face. This is the God we worship. A God who promises joy when dark days come. Live wisely, brothers and sisters. Suffering's coming. Secondly, I want you to see live wisely because judgment is coming. Look with me, if you will, at the latter half of verse 9. He says yet again, but no, but no, know this. For all these things, God's going to bring you into judgment. Rejoice, rejoice, live it up, enjoy this good short life, but know that for all these things, you are going to be brought into, in the original Hebrew, it's the judgment, which means the final day when we will stand before God, which Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.10, he says we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil. If you just flip the Bible over one page, you'll see him talk about this yet again in the 12th chapter of Ecclesiastes where he says in verse 14 that God's going to bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. You see, this reminder of judgment is a stark reminder to each of us that how we live matters. Now, hear me. Don't cheapen His grace by saying, 
It doesn't really matter how I live. God's a God of grace. The gospel is good news. I'll live it up. And when I stand in judgment one day, He's going to forgive me thanks to Jesus, my fire insurance. Don't cheapen His grace. Don't weaken His grace. For conversely, this is not a summons to work really hard and to live as best life as you can so that when you stand before judgment, you won't be surprised. This is really, when you look at this word judgment, it's a reminder that we must not just cheapen, we must not weaken, we need to believe in His grace. You need to believe that He has been good to you. He was good to you when He sent Jesus on the cross to live the life you could never live, to die the death that you deserve. He absorbed the wrath of God that was due you and me as sinners. He in Jesus did it all. He's been good to you when He raised Jesus from the dead. He's been good to you when He sent His Spirit as a promise and seal that you are in Jesus. He is good to you this moment. He has sustained you this day. What grace you can look back on an otherwise tough year and just see His fingerprints of grace all over your life. Praise Him that you who deserve judgment will one day stand before Him clothed in His grace, the blood of the Lamb. He will one day be gracious to you. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is Jude 24 and 25, which says, Now to Jesus, who is able to keep us from stumbling and to make us stand in God's presence, blameless and with great joy. One day we will stand before the almighty creator of heaven and earth. And the Bible says, instead of falling to our face in sheer terror, we will stand there stunningly with great joy because of Jesus and what he has done for you. But the reminder remains. Don't presume upon the riches of his kindness. Live wisely for judgment is coming. Know that for all these things you'll be brought into judgment. You will stand before your Maker. Number three and finally, the final reminder we must encounter in verse 10. Suffering is coming. Judgment is coming. And lastly, take heart. Temptation is coming. So you must live wisely. Verse 10. Remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body. When he says remove vexation, what he is saying is run away from, flee. Original word is kaos, which is a strange word and it means a combination of sorrow, frustration, anxiety, resentment. We don't use that word vexation much, do we? So when he says remove vexation, he is saying run away from all those things that are stumbling blocks to your joy in the Lord. So take a step back and ask yourself, what are those stumbling blocks in your life this moment? What are those things that vex your joy in the Lord? Is it a friend that keeps tempting you, but you just like hanging out with them? Is it a TV show that's warping your mind, but you enjoy being able to talk about it the next day at work? Is it ambition that keeps frustrating you, causing you to be anxious and welling up with worry? The call to you is to flee this. Remove vexation. Moreover, he says, put away pain in your body. Now, 
Some of you are like, if only I could. That word pain in the original language is really with reference to the word evil. So when it says remove pain from your body, it is saying get rid of those things that are evil within, those sins that cling so near. In other words, when he says put it away, he is saying turn from it, repent of it, come to me. Temptation is coming. There will be endless temptations for you. Endless to keep you from joy. It'll sap you. The minute you leave this room, somebody's going to say something to you in that lobby. Your child is going to do something in the parking lot. You're going to get all bent out of shape over where to go to lunch. You're going to get home and it's not right. There are going to be these little subtle things that are going to squeeze you and squeeze you. And you are going to be as joyless when you leave as when you came. And so hear now the words of God. Remove it. Flee from it. Put it away. And part of repenting is falling on your face and saying, God, my flesh is so weak. I need you to manifest your manifold mercies, your great graces in my life. I need your help. I am a wicked man. I am prone to wander. I am prone to frustration. I am short-tempered. God, would you do a work in me? I want to be what you've called me to be for the sake of my precious wife, for the sake of my children, for the sake of this church. God, please. By the way, I pray that for myself almost every day. Live wisely, brothers and sisters. Suffering's coming. Judgment's coming. Temptation is coming. Life is short. Eternity is long. Which is why he says, for youth and the dawn of life are vanity. That word dawn of life, in the original language, it actually means black hair. And he's, what is he saying? You're about to lose your black hair. Y'all going to get gray quickly. That's why I shaved my beard, because I had gray in my beard. Life is short. Eternity is long. And for many in this room, I think the invitation from Christ Himself is that you join Moses in pleading, God, teach me, teach me, teach me to number my days. Join us in this revolutionary prayer. Oh, may God so move in this church that we would be a church known for numbering our days. But I suspect for some in this room, perhaps joining us online, that what you need to hear more than anything else is that you are not promised tomorrow. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Today. Today, if the prospect of death is so disturbing to you that it makes your knees knock and you can't help but just suppress it, stuff it, move it away, if your gut instinct is to just flee from the thought of your mortality, may you receive that feeling as a call from Christ this moment to confront at last the hard reality that you are mortal, that your life is a vapor, 
and that there is a Creator who has made you for eternity. And He is calling you to remove vexation, to put away evil, to turn from your sins, and to receive the utter joy that is found in Him. And so this moment, just throw yourself upon the mercy of God. As I pray in a moment, just cry out to Him with me and say, Oh God, I confess that I need You. I confess that I am joyless or reckless. Father in heaven, I need you. I don't even know who you are, but please, Lord, show yourself to me. And he has through his word. So the invitation to you this day is to come to Christ and experience unmitigated joy that will one day await you. Would you join me as we pray? With your heads bowed, the call to each of us is that we must confront the hard reality that our lives are often not lived in the bracing light of eternity. So this morning for believers in this room, you might just want to cry out in confession, oh God, forgive me for my joylessness. Forgive me for not living wisely. Would you do a work in my heart? And for others, you may need to finally at last taste and see that this God is good. So Father in heaven, almighty Lord of the universe, I'm asking that you would do what my mere lips cannot. And that's move in this room in the hearts of your people. Would you open blind eyes, soften hardened hearts, open stopped ears. Oh God, I pray that you would convert those whom you have destined to hear this gospel anew. Do this, I pray, Lord, for Jesus' sake and the good of this church. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I invite you to stand as Gerald leads us. The invitation to us is to sing and respond in prayer and in praise.